We'll start with an opening five to 10 minute talk of each of the panelists, starting with Jeff Dice, going to Brent Johnson and ending with CEO Keith Weiner. Their predictions, their thoughts, their analysis on the future of the US dollar. We'll start with Jeff Deist. All right. Hey everybody, how are you tonight? Thank you for coming, great to see you. And of course we thank you for your interest in monetary metals. Great company in my opinion, I just joined uh, earlier this year and would not have joined if I didn't think it was a great company and a great concept. So. You know, I was watching a, a video presentation earlier today. The New Orleans Investment Conference is pretty venerable as investment conferences go. It's been around since the 1980s. And some of the speakers over the years, people like Milton Friedman, uh, some big names like Jim Grant. And I was watching it and I just thought to myself, Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand has spoken here. She came down on a train. Uh, but one thing I, I, that really struck me watching that is, you know, is, is just this idea that nobody knows. In other words, I'm, I'm a macroeconomics denier. I think macroeconomics is, is nonsense. I think the idea of what seven billion people get up every morning and do uh, is unpredictable. They're not atoms or molecules. So, you know, when it comes to economics and our understanding of how society works, and, and of course what people at this conference are interested in is, you know, how to make money or at least how to preserve it. Uh, the, the short answer is that nobody knows for sure. So we have to go with what we do know, and I think that's uh, understanding that humans act and they respond to incentives, and there's certain things we can know axiomatically about humans. I have a, a great friend in Vienna, Austria, named Rahim Takhizadeh, and I might be butchering his last name. He's of Iranian descent. And he gave a talk a couple years ago where he said, you know, the, the currency is really the calling card of a nation. And I thought that was pretty poignant. You know, for, for many, many decades, the Swiss were, you know, the, the Swiss franc was, was an impressive currency now. In the last, let's say, decade, the Swiss central bank has gone a bit off the rails. But the idea of, of, of your currency as being your calling card, um, as I assume most of us in this room are Americans, what does our currency say about us? Uh, what is the U.S. dollar? Uh, I would argue it is a it's a, a great and wonderful tool in many ways. You can use it almost anywhere in the world. It has held its value. Uh, it, it's been a wonderful, exorbitant privilege for us for many, many decades. And we've been able to export, export a lot of inflation and fund a lot of wars and fund a lot of entitlements and other things using that dollar. And so the question on so many people's minds uh, now is, is how and when does that come to an end? Well. Uh, people who think like us were, were saying it was going to come to an end 50 years ago in 1971. People like Doug Casey were saying it was going to come to an end. Uh, I've learned a lot listening to Brent. I, I tend to ascribe to his idea of, you know, the dollar is the, as, uh, certainly the least dirty shirt in the laundry. But as a calling card, I think our dollar uh, it, it doesn't serve us well uh, as we go abroad. So. Uh, a, a couple of, of, of things that I would mention is that if we look back on the last time interest rates were high, the late 70s and early 80s, U.S. federal debt was roughly $1 trillion. So no matter how high interest rates went, that wasn't much of a problem for Congress to service every year in its annual budget. Today, that debt is $33 trillion. 
We can fast forward to 2008. There's, there was that sort of feeling of a roller coaster going over the hill, you know, and it starts over slowly because the tail is still on the other side, but when it goes, it, it goes quickly. And I remember those months in 2008 around the Lehman crash, and I remember that, I think a lot of us in this room probably had a real pit in our stomachs. And I was working in the M&A world at that time, and I was very fortunate, frankly, to keep my job. Uh, I had young young family at the time. Uh, and if we look at 2008 and versus today, I mean, what have we done? The total worldwide debt at all levels, sovereign, corporate, household, individual, was about $140 trillion in 2008. Today, it's over 300. So we haven't dealt with it. We've used monetary policy to kick the can down the road. And, you know, maybe that's a rational thing. But nonetheless, I, I think that we have reached a tipping point in the sense that uh, inflation, in my view, will be a permanent, or at least near permanent, feature of the American landscape for the next decade, and we will all, ex all experience that in a way that we haven't in the past, and that's going to mean that you're, you know, it's, it's about keeping up with that as much as it is about um, becoming wealthy. That's gonna hit the poorest folks the hardest, uh, the, the less affluent folks amongst us, uh, you know, the people who make uh, less money, they spend obviously a much higher percentage of the money they make on basics like rent and food and gasoline. Um, I don't know how some of these uh, single, single parent families and such, I don't, I don't know how they're making it right now. Uh, any one of us just walk into Costco and look at T-bones versus even a year ago, but certainly two or three years ago. So I think that inflation is a new thing and I think we all have to adjust our thinking to that. Uh, you know, uh, and we haven't had to do that. We've, again, we've enjoyed that exorbitant privilege and uh, we have probably, as a country, lived beyond our means for many, many decades. And there's, a, there's certainly a chance that that could continue on. But um, I think you know, part of what monetary metals tries to do is say, you know, we can't predict the future, but we can offer a, a, a very novel idea that Keith came up with, uh, and, and we can do so in a way that we don't, you know, you don't have to worry about what, what gold is doing relative to the dollar or any other currency. You don't have to think that there's going to be hyperinflation in America. You don't have to think that there is going to be a big government crackdown on Bitcoin. Um, you, we can just offer a slow, steady yield so you have more ounces than you started with. And uh, we can't know the future, but we can know the past and gold has never gone to zero. There's never been a time where someone's grandpa passed away with a bunch of gold and it was worthless. That, that time has never come. So I think these are, are reasons that we should understand that gold is going to continue to have some moneyness to it. It's gonna have some element as a financial asset above and beyond just a commodity. And if, if it were just a commodity, it would be priced simply for its value in jewelry or industrial uses. And the fact that it's priced in whatever currency higher than that, I think, is the market's way, which is to say humanity's way, uh, of saying, you know what? Gold still has a moneyness, even if we don't use it as money today, day to day, or, or we're frankly not allowed to use it as money day to day. So, uh, uncertain times, and I think uh, gold is is a is a certain asset in uncertain times. Thanks.
Thank you, Jeff. Reminder, any questions for any of the panelists, write those down in the little piece of paper in the middle of your table. We'll aggregate those for a Q&A at the end of the speaking. We'll now turn to Brent Johnson of Santiago Capital to give his view on the future of the U.S. dollar. Uh, hi, thanks for everybody coming tonight, and thanks to Keith for inviting me. It was very uh, nice of you to do. When I first met Keith, gosh, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, I, w I read a report he had written. I said, wow, this guy sounds pretty smart. And the more I read from him, I liked, part of the reason I liked him so much is he wasn't a sensationalist, and he wasn't calling for hyperinflation, and he wasn't overly dramatic about gold. He just kind of laid it out how it was very thoughtfully and logically, and I kind of related to that pretty well. So. It's been fun kind of keeping in touch with him over the years on that kind of stuff. Um, as far as the U.S. dollar, did, it, I guess, did, did a lot of people here hear my speech earlier today? Yeah. Okay. All right. So thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I had a real turning point in, in, uh, in my kind of journey on this probably about seven or eight years ago. Um, it was the 2015. And... Part of the journey was that I was very angry and very upset after 2008. I thought the way that the government responded to the crisis was very unfair. I thought uh, the way the government bailed out the, the wealthy at the expense of the, you know, the less fortunate was wrong. And it just really stood in contrast to my view of you know, the United States as the bright shining city on a hill. I just didn't think that was right. And for the next five or six years, I fought against it. And it was in 2014, a friend of mine, who a uh, very smart guy, very successful investor, who was also a big fan of gold, said that the dollar was going to get a lot stronger. And I thought he was crazy. And I couldn't figure out how he could say that gold was an important asset to own, but that the dollar was going to get a lot stronger. And sure enough, in the second half of 2014, the dollar went on like a 10% run higher. And I started asking other people in the gold world, why is this happening? And they all said, well, it won't last. It can't last. And then I would ask somebody else. They'd give me the same answer. But nobody ever wanted to actually figure out why it was going higher. And it kind of made me mad. And so in 2015, I said, well, I'm clearly wrong. I got it wrong. My friend got it right. How did he get this right? What does he know that I don't? And that's when I kind of really went back in and... Uh, kind of looking at, looking at the, mo the monetary system. And I realized one of the mistakes that I made was that, number one, I was very emotional about it. And I wasn't looking at things clearly. I thought that I was, and, um, but I wasn't because I was very mad. And once I kind of, maybe there's a little bit of the time heals all wounds. You know, we are now six or seven years past the, the financial crisis. I was able to kind of step back and look at things a little bit more rationally, a little bit less emotionally. And I started to realize that what I had been doing was projecting my own wants and desires on a system that didn't care what I thought. And that's when I came to realize that if I'm going to, and I was managing other people's money, and I, but I was managing other people's money with my own belief system. And that's kind of, for me as a money manager, that's kind of breaching my fiduciary duty. Because my fiduciary duty was not to use their, mon their money to make my world better my duty was to make their money bigger. <laughs> and so that helped a lot. And so what I've done a lot over the last seven or eight years was to, to my best to explain to people that 
while the U.S. has committed many fiscal sins and we will eventually pay for them, everybody else is doing the same thing. And just because we want something to happen doesn't mean it's going to happen. And I think when you're putting your own money on the line, and which means your future's on the line, you gotta be as unemotional and as rational as possible. And so that's, that's that, and that, so that, that brings me back to, to the dollar, and that is, you know, I think a lot of people have a hard time thinking of the dollar and gold positively at the same time, because a lot of times they're seen as competitors. And I don't think they necessarily need to be seen that way. And I think if you look back over the last couple of years, gold has gone up a lot, but so has the dollar. And if, I mean, that, that's, just, that's just a fact, right? And, you know, I think we'll get into a situation where the dollar and gold go up together versus everything else. Remember when I say everything else, all the other currencies. And I think all of the fears that people have about what will eventually happen to the dollar will happen to all the other currencies first. And so that's the other thing is like, uh, Jeff said he doesn't like macroeconomics. I gotta disagree with you because I love it. I think it's amazing. And the other mistake that I had made, I, at least for me, the mistake that I had made when I was thinking the dollar was gonna go lower is I was trying to analyze the United States in a vacuum, in just a silo. Just look at the United States and what, you know, look at it fundamentally and what kind of a shape is it in. And when you do that, the only possible conclusion you can come to is that it's in, it's in horrible shape and it's all gonna go downhill. But the problem is, is when you analyze something in isolation, you're missing everything that's going wrong around it. And the reality is, is if you were to do that same analysis on Canada, if you were to do the same analysis on Europe, the same analysis on South Africa, China, Japan, they're all in the same situation. And they don't have near the advantages that the United States does. And when you realize that currencies trade relative to each other, and that it's not an absolute game, then you can kind of figure out how the dollar isn't going to fall the way many people predict it is going to. At least that's the conclusion I have come to. And I kind of started referring to it as Machiavellian money when I talk about the dollar. And the reason I say that is Machiavelli said, is it better to be loved or feared? And the reality is, is that for the dollar, it's kind of both. I mean, people around the world love it and they're, and they're fearful of it because they've seen it save them and they've seen it wipe them out. And what I mean by that is, if you ever travel, like talk to the locals, and especially if you travel to a less fortunate country. I, I was in Argentina earlier this year, and I talked to a bunch of different people, and the first thing they do when they get paid is they go buy dollars. They exchange it for dollars. They don't rush out and buy silver. They don't rush out and buy gold. They go buy dollars, and they consider the dollar hard money. Uh, I have a client from Lebanon. The first thing they do when they get paid is buy dollars. They, don't, they do own gold, and they're not against gold, but they think of the dollar as a very safe savings tool. And so I think when you kind of broaden your horizons and think about things from a bigger perspective, rather than just analyzing it as an American, you realize that, uh, that it's a big world and what everybody else does outside the United States does matter. And they don't view the dollar as negatively as many Americans do. And so I think, I, for me, that's the important thing to, to keep in mind. It, it is a relative world, um, and when you're investing your money, you gotta be as cutthroat and rational and kind of a mercenary, for lack of a better way of saying it, as possible, uh, because the market does not care about your emotions.
In fact, it'll, a lot of times it'll do the exact opposite of what you want it to do. I'll just leave it at that. Thank you, Brent Johnson. Let's give it up for Brent. Last but not least, CEO of Monetary Metals, Keith Weiner on the future of the U.S. dollar. It almost seems like you guys set me up. That there's, the, there's the thesis and the antithesis, that macro's terrible and, and macro's great. And um, so I'm gonna try to synthesize that if I can. And I think that most of what passes for economics or macroeconomics today is rubbish. And my favorite punching bag is MV equals PQ which is the, I call it the monetarist equation. It sort of looks like physics envy. It looks like PV equals NRT, the ideal gas law, um, except it's not a real equation and has a FUD factor built in so they can cheat and, and always balances. But I do think there absolutely are um, iron laws of economics and things work in a certain way. And we're all familiar with, everybody familiar with Gresham's law? You know, if, if the government fixes the value of two things, whichever one is given an artificially higher um, price by government edict versus its actual market value, that thing will come into the market and be traded, perhaps with high velocity, and whatever is undervalued by government, uh, but actually higher value in reality, people will hide it and hoard it and it disappears. So there absolutely are certain things that are predictable because they are cause and effect. One of the things I've written about is R is greater than I that the return on capital must be greater than the cost of capital, or to put it in very tan tangible, concrete terms, if you're running a hamburger restaurant, you cannot be borrowing at 10% to fund and finance a business that's generating 8% return on capital. You will destroy yourself, you will go out of business, you will find yourself in bankruptcy court and receivership. So there absolutely are economic laws, and I think one of them, and this is, I guess, arguably more micro, as people look for solutions. The problem is, especially when it comes to money, the solution is daunting and nobody has the solution. And I'll use the example, if anybody ever knows, uh, has known anybody who's had cancer, there's certainly a very strong desire to find a solution. It doesn't mean that there is one. And then, you know, people with cancer obviously, you know, can die from it. Um, my father passed away from cancer many years ago. Um, and it's the same thing with money. You go around the rest of the world, and I, I, uh, I think I said this in my bullet, I feel very privileged to have the chance to not only travel around the world, but spend uh, a lot of time, much more than tourists would, and really talking to people, talking to businesses, which is obviously my job, um, and getting to hear their views and their positions and showing them, look, I'm not an American jingoist, I'm not here to just recite the party line and say, yeah, America great, the dollar great. And I, I try to listen more than I talk. I'm trying to hear what they think and I'm happy to share my views, and obviously I have videos and essays out there, and usually they know, they know what I think anyway, but I want to hear what they think. And there's a, a very curious love-hate relationship with the dollar. Um, and there's a lot of places in the world where, I mean, I'm not visiting places that are enemies of the U.S. I'm not going to the places where they're chanting death to America, um, where the you know, state... Uh, propaganda media is constantly saying, you know, kill America, kill Americans. I'm not, I'm not visiting those places. I'm visiting places where people are left to think what they think. And as Brent said, I mean, maybe it's the dollar saves them, but it's, they're also, the dollar's also killing them. And I have a chance to see that, and I have a chance to hear what they think. And, um, you know, they're not fans of U.S. foreign policy, certainly, 
in a lot of places in the world are not fan, fans of our monetary policy. They, they get that America is doing things that aren't good for them. And yet, the dollar keeps going on being what it is. Cancer goes on, and I usually, I have a, a thesis that I call the dollar cancer and, and the gold cure. The dollar is a cancer, it goes on being cancerous. And just because you wish to get rid of it doesn't mean that there's uh, a means you know, to do so or that, or that you're capable of finding one anyways. Um, and so, meeting with some folks, a family office in the Middle East, um, you know, we're talking about their local currency, which is pegged to the dollar. And unlike certain pegs, the ruble, the yuan, this particular peg is table flat, and you go back, you know, 20 plus years, it's, it's absolutely flat. And um, so they're saying it's safe, and it's this and it's that. And I said, you know, I get it, it's pegged, and the peg has been good so far. But there's always a risk with a currency peg, or any other kind of peg for that matter, that pegs fail every, every once in a while, and then when they fail, they fail violently. You know, when the Swiss National Bank was pegging their currency, by the way, trying to keep it down, not up. They were the opposite of a banana republic. They weren't trying to say our peso was worth one peso to the dollar. They were trying to keep it no, uh, no higher than 1.3 franc to the, um, to the euro. They didn't want it to go up anymore, and it was going up, and they, they tried to peg it. It failed violently, and the Swiss National Bank lost something like 20% of annual GDP in a millisecond. So when, they, when these things break, it's, it's nasty. Uh, and I said, there's, you know, there's always a risk that the, the peg snaps. And so your currency is a proxy for dollars. Uh, and it's been a good proxy for the last 20, 30 years. Um, but if that snaps, you know, why would, why would anybody want to hold, why would you want to hold uh, a proxy for dollars? If you want dollar exposure, you might as well hold real dollars. So uh, the head of the family office and the attorney both looked at each other, kind of, and then they looked back at me and said, that's our strategy exactly. They don't hold their local currency except for what they need for immediate liquidity over the next you know, one to three months. Everything else is dollars. And they have some gold, which is why I'm talking to them, but it's, it's dollars. Um, this is how it is in the rest of the world. You could talk to a, a pension fund in Malaysia. Um, the balance sheet is denominated in dollars. You know, you talk to uh, insurers, you talk to everybody, and it's a dollar world. Um, so I argue that all the other currencies are actually derivatives of the dollar. They couldn't survive if the dollar were to collapse first, which it won't be for a hundred reasons. They couldn't survive that collapse in the same way that a call option on Apple couldn't survive Apple's bankruptcy. You can't say, well, let's dump Apple and buy Apple call options. You, you, it's, it's a losing deal. So there is absolutely... You like that analogy? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's absolutely a desire in many parts of the world, let's just say the Middle East, but let's add India and let's add other places around that whole region where people get gold. And I, I think as an American, I get to say, and having traveled the way I have, I get to say that Americans understand gold the least. By far, it's not even close. In Europe, they've had hyperinflation in living memory, and most of the rest of the world, they have ongoing and regular periodic inflations that, you know, if Americans were to say, well, we've had a currency crisis too, and they're gonna, what do you mean? Yeah. Well, the late 1970s, you know, we had inflation that was running at 13%, and shadow stats said it was 18% or whatever. They'd be like, oh, 13 or 18%, do you mean per month? Oh, per year, oh, that's cute. You think that's bad? You know, and their, and their currencies, you know, they lop off four or five zeros every eight years. Um, so, you know, we haven't had that, thankfully, and so Americans are pretty complacent about it. They don't get that it's, you know, a multi-currency world, but in, in a certain sense, it isn't a multi-currency world. It really is a dollar world. The other currencies are like local, 
like in a coal mining town in West Virginia, they, had, they issued these paper scrip, you know, the companies that, that ran those towns. And perhaps some of those people had such a narrow horizon that they thought their script was competing against the dollar, even, might, be, might even beat it. Oh, I, my company, you know, my coal mining town is so big and so important, it's, it's going out, to you know, outrun the dollar, outlast the dollar or something. Maybe some people thought that, I don't know. Um, but you know, if you're looking at it objectively, so that's preposterous. So we're trying to go with all this. I gave a five-minute bullet yesterday morning. How many people saw that? Okay, so good part of the room. I don't, I don't want to try to repeat it, but I'm going to touch on the point that there are a lot of people that are looking for an alternative, and in particularly if you look at the BRICS nations, there's definitely a real need, a real driver for an alternative. So what are they going to do? So they're trying bilateral trade, which means that, you know, each is going to pay the other in their own local currency. And so India was buying oil from Russia, and then some Russian minister eventually stood up and said, we're taking Russia, uh, excuse me, Indian rupees for our oil. We're not doing that anymore because we've accumulated a pile of useless rupees. And he used the word pile and he used the word useless in what he said publicly. This is their, this is their friend that he, was, that he was saying this. This is their partner, right? One of the two bricks. Um, another two pairs of the bricks, India and China, are actually, their soldiers are actually killing each other with bullets at the border. So uh, they're not necessarily that friendly to each other. Um, there's, there's no, you know, so I, I think I, I relayed the anecdote meeting with somebody of Indian origin in the Middle East, very patriotic, very nationalistic to India, very loyal to Modi, very much not, a fan, I mean, not hatred of America, but definitely not a fan of America or the dollar. And when the concept of a BRICS currency came up, he just laughed. He said, have you seen a chart of the rupee? Have you seen a chart of the ruble? Have you seen a chart of the yuan? Have you seen a chart of the Brazilian real? And he had the statistics of how much each one had fallen in how many years. He said, so you're going to take four small falling currencies, and he used the word small for, for uh, the Chinese yuan, by the way, um, and you're going to combine them into one big falling currency. He said it's a joke. He was just laughing. Um, this guy's not a fan of the dollar, and yet everything he's doing is, is, is dollars. So this part of the world needs uh, a solution. These, these countries, especially Russia, is locked out of the dollar system. They don't have a choice. So they're kind of like the fox, you know, looking up at the grape saying, oh, they're probably sour anyway. Dollar sucks. It's, you know, Biden's destroying it. It's going to fail. You know, that's, the, that's the, the fox muttering, you know, because he can't get at it. And uh, the rest of the country, the rest of the countries in the world are birds and they're, and they're eating those grapes. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's just terrible. It's sour. Um, so <laughs> there's some ironies in the world anyways. But um, the point being that um, it's, oh, and, and I think, uh, Russia was buying something from China, they're buying electronics, and um, they, they want to tender uh, rubles. I don't think China wanted the rubles, they're trying to tender yuan, but where do they get yuan? Yuan doesn't trade globally, I mean, it's, there's capital controls. It's completely controlled by an authoritarian and brutal dictatorship, becoming more brutal and more authoritarian as we go. Um, so they can't use each other's currencies, they don't really want to use the dollar, Russia can't use the dollar anyway, so if you want to trade with Russia, it really can't be dollars. What are you going to do? So the obvious thing is, you know, let's say India exports, I'm just going to be very stereotyping here, India exports spices to Russia, and Russia exports oil to India. And I'm going to presume that the value of the oil is greater than the value of the spices. They only have to settle the difference between the two. So if you trade equal values on both sides, you don't really have to ship any money back and forth. But if, assuming the oil is worth more, India has to pay something to China for that oil. What is that going to be? If it's not the dollar, what is it going to be? It's going to be gold. 
because nothing else works. So I, I love the quote from Winston Churchill, um, and it was a very backhanded compliment that he gave America. He said, God bless America, this is Winston Churchill, because after Americans have done everything else, they'll do the right thing. <laughs> so in that spirit, I say, you know, God bless the, the world, because after they've tried everything else monetarily, they're, they're going to end up using gold. So what I think they're going to do is they're going to put gold bricks on an airplane and fly it to pay uh, the bill for whatever it is they're buying. That's the obvious and logical. Not because everyone is thinking systemically and thinking, I want to make the world a better place. No, no, no. This is to solve an immediate and urgent need, which is India wants to import oil. And if you want to import Russian oil, you've got to pay them in something they can accept. Uh, they're not taking rupees. They're not taking yuan. They're not taking real. Uh, you don't have rubles. What are you going to pay them? And they, and they can't take dollars. They're locked out of the system. What are you going to pay them in? Well, gold will work when nothing else works. So you're going to put gold bricks on a plane and fly it over. And that's going to happen for a while. And people are going to discover this is painful and it's expensive. And most importantly, it's slow. You don't have liquidity while uh, you know, the gold bricks are flying around. And then it takes time to receive them, and they have to be, uh, you know, the plane has to land um, in, in controlled conditions. You have to get the gold out of it. You're going to have to assay it. All during that time, there's no liquidity. You're kind of locked. And so it's a very huge step back from a monetary system perspective. Somebody wires you dollars today. It's not weeks or even days before you have access to the funds. It's same day or next day, right? So um, eventually, you know, they're going to say, again, just to solve an immediate and urgent problem, hey, why don't we all have some gold in an, a jurisdiction that was as mutually acceptable to all of us? And that way, and we can all have it in the same vault even. It wouldn't be Brinks because Brinks is a U.S. company, and obviously Russia wouldn't trust it, and Brinks wouldn't onboard Russia as a client anyway. Nowadays, it would be illegal for an American company to do that. Um, but they'll pick some. Uh, uh, you know, a company, you know, that's, that's domiciled in a neutral territory and say, oh, let's put all of our gold there and then we can just transfer it around, uh, you, you know, by, by directing the vault to move the bar from, or bars from, uh, you know, one owner to another. That's so much more efficient than putting gold on airplanes. Okay, that's going to work for a while. And then the next thing is, gee, while the gold's sitting there, wouldn't it be neat if we had some way to generate a return if you know that um, the weed harvest is coming up in six months, you know you're gonna have a big payment that you're gonna have to make when you take delivery. But in the meantime, wouldn't it be neat if there was some six-month instrument that you could invest that gold in to get a return? Uh, and then finally, certain commodities, uh, take iron ore, for example. You put that on a boat, that's weeks before that's getting to the smelter. Let's say it's going from Australia to China, and then the uh, refined steel is going from China to uh, you know, Europe or Central Asia or something like that, that needs to be financed. And so um, on one hand, you've got uh, gold that's looking for return. On the other hand, you've got goods that are going to be paid for in gold uh, looking for finance. So it's logical that some sort of gold-based financial system, not an official currency, mind you, not the BRICS governments deciding that they're going to impose a gold currency on their peoples or that they're going to issue some sort of gold currency that the rest of the world's going to want. Nobody's going to send their gold to Russia in exchange for a gold-backed ruble. That's preposterous. But just the gold is there, and they're going to look for some way to, to put it to work and get a return, and they're going to look for some way to get financing. And so bit by bit, you can see how a financial system evolves. I think that jurisdiction is Dubai. 
It obviously can't be London. London is not neutral. It can't be Switzerland. Switzerland isn't neutral anymore either. Uh, Dubai is. And there's an enormous volume of gold trading and gold activity and gold liquidity in Dubai right now already. And um, Dubai has been pretty neutral. And they've managed to hold that line. The US hasn't forced them to be anti-Russia or anything else. Dubai is you know, taking its own path. And they're saying, we want to trade with everybody. Um, and uh, you know, they have more trust to earn. But um, I think you know, over time, this, this can become a trusted jurisdiction. And obviously, in the point being, the whole raison d'etre of monetary metals is to help the world find a path to get to that gold standard, is find a cure for that cancer, that everybody wants that cure, but it's very daunting to how to get there. And it's about using gold to finance productive activities, including production itself, including the transport of the goods, including uh, the trade of the goods, and including um, you know, storage and distribution and everything else. And so we see an enormous opportunity to, to, to set up in Dubai in advance of this, and, and help this happen and help the world move to a monetary system in which no country has this exorbitant privilege. I just want to end on one note. A lot of Americans may think that the US dollar system and its exorbitant privilege is good for America because it's bad for the rest of the world. In other words, because they're losing, therefore we must be winning, which is kind of implicitly saying that uh, economics is zero sum. If there's a loser, the other side must be a winner. The current monetary system was dictated to the rest of the world at Bretton Woods by the United States. The chief guy running the United States faction was one Harry Dexter White, who was later criminally proven in court to be a tool working for the Soviet Union. His job and, and his, his intention was actually to undermine the United States, not to um, make the United States king of the world. And his devised system did or is undermining the United States it just took a lot longer than he expected. He didn't live to see it. It's hollowing us uh, out, it's gutting us as, as, a, as an economic powerhouse. It's not good for us either, although, boy, does it give us a lot of consumer goods, at least for the time being. Um, so what we're trying to do is find a path to an honest monetary system where nobody has the ability to cheat. Nobody has the ability to put their thumb, either pushing down the scale or pushing up the scale. Um, and if you want to trade value for value, you have to trade value that both parties feel that they're, uh, they're getting a win out of it. So that's, that's how I see things evolving. Not any other currency replacing the dollar. You know, the acronym is TINA. There is no alternative. But there is one thing that can replace the dollar. It's not another paper currency. It's not a dollar derivative. It's gold. Oh, sorry. I like your idea about Dubai and have it a neutral place where they don't have to ship the gold around. They can just move it in a vault. But my question is, why would the U.S. ever agree to that? The U.S. may not necessarily have to agree to that. I mean, if those other countries want to put some gold in Dubai, what is, it, what, is the United States going to bomb Dubai? I mean, how is the U.S. going to say no? May, I mean, maybe, but... Question from the audience. Let's start with Jeff Deist, move our way down. How big does the U.S. debt need to get before citizens lose confidence in the dollar and it begins to collapse in value? Hmm. I, I really have no idea because no one thought it would get to $33 trillion. Uh, when W entered office in 2001, it was five. So mathematically, structurally, we still could have fixed it at that point with some 
entitlement cuts, tax hikes, what, however. So it's still mathematically possible, even if it was politically impossible, as recently as W, that's 20 years ago. Um, when Reagan entered office, it was one trillion. When he left, it was three. Uh, so I, I don't know the answer to that question, but you have to think, yes, we have a Fed that's an implicit, soon maybe explicit backstop to buy up treasury debt, but at some point you just wonder, why would anyone lend money to Uncle Sam with this profligate Congress at anything other than junk bond rates? I, 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 I honestly don't have an answer to that question. Brent Johnson, question to you. Is there a U.S. dollar debt amount where people start to lose faith in the currency and it loses value? It's a very difficult question to answer, but I would say it's going to be a lot higher than we have now. And part of the reason is there is so much external demand for the U.S. dollar. If there was not so much demand for the dollar outside the United States, then they wouldn't be able to have gotten away with what they've already gotten away with. Um, I think the best way for me to explain this is, so I live in Puerto Rico, and we get a lot of rain there. And the condo I live in, we have a drainage system to where when the rain comes and it hits the top of the building, it flows into the, uh, the gutters and it rolls down. And at the bottom of the condo, we have a drain and it takes it into the sewer system and it takes it away. But last Friday, we had so much rain that it filled up the drains and it couldn't, couldn't disperse it fast enough. So the water started bubbling up, it filled the garage, it covered the streets and water was just, we had flash flooding. And that's kind of the way the monetary system works is, what's the right way for me to explain this? If the United States is the building and we have these pipes, the euro dollar system outside the United States is the drain. And a lot of times when we print money, that's the rain coming down. So we're putting more liquidity in. But the reason we're putting more liquidity in is because dollars are disappearing outside the United States and it's draining into the outside of the United States. The only way to get inflation is if they're putting so much rain in that it's overflowing what's being destroyed. So the point is, is the government doesn't just come out out of the blue and start doing QE and printing money. The reason they do QE or print money, however you want to describe that, is because there's a hole and it's being drained out and all the current liquidity is getting sucked away. And so they're trying to fill it back up. But the only way to get inflation, like, so as an example, what we had the last three years was when it rained so much that it wasn't being drained away as fast. And so if that, if that external demand for the dollar, if that drain were to disappear, then as they print money, it starts to lose value because it just starts spreading. You know, we have what we had the last couple of years. But I think as long as we have that huge euro dollar demand for the dollar, it's going to be a long time before the dollar goes away. CEO Keith Weiner, question to you. What is the total number of U.S. debt outstanding before people start to lose faith in the currency and it starts to devalue? I have no idea what the number is. You know, I, I like to say you don't have to be a PhD in economics to realize that no good can possibly come out of what they're doing. You know, we can debate the exact failure mode. My particular thesis is that is, is twofold. One, 
you know, you have to understand that behind every dollar there's a debtor. And the deeper that, let's say you're a farmer and you owe a million dollars, the deeper you get into debt, the more frantically you have to produce, whatever, let's say wheat, the more desperately, urgently, you must produce more and more wheat to bring to market and dump on the bid price, dollar bid price for wheat in order to raise enough cash that net of expenses, you have enough to service your debt. And the deeper everyone goes into debt, the more they have to do this. So every dollar of supply creates a dollar of demand um, or, or several dollars of demand for the debt service. So, you know, if you're that farmer and you're in that debt, if you ever miss a payment, you know, the creditors come take your farm and your house and you're ruined. So there is not ever a point at which the debtor, uh, you know, repudiates it because he doesn't have that choice. At the same time, obviously something's going to fail. So I argue that one should not think of gold as priced in dollars. One should think of the dollar as priced in gold. So back in 1913, before the creation of the Fed, the dollar was 1,500 and something milligrams of gold, 1.5 grams. And now it's about 16 milligrams of gold. So the dollar's fallen almost 100 to 1. When it goes to 15 you know, milligrams, then that's 100 to 1 since 1913. So uh, and the dollar continues to go down in gold terms, but consumer prices in dollar terms, not necessarily so. And since most people measure the currency by its purchasing power, you know, it can hold surprisingly stable for a long, long, long time because the more debt that's out there, the more demand there is for the dollars to service the debt. Um, however, the owners of the gold are really the ones supporting the dollar. They're bidding on the dollar and that bid can go away. When that happens, when it's no longer, when gold is no longer bidding on the dollar, and I, I, I wanna um, explain this by, by using an analogy. Whenever there's a crisis, a real stress in the market, it's always the bid that's withdrawn, never the offer. So imagine if the US Geological Survey were to say that there's going to be an earthquake on the San Andreas Fault, 15 on the Richter scale. Nothing taller than a dollhouse will be left standing. You would not see, you would see plenty of offers to sell real estate, and some people would try to get coy, 20% off or whatever. What you would not see is a bid, probably from Santiago, Chile, all the way up to um, British Columbia, and probably as far east, at least as the Mississippi River, there would not be a bid on real estate, as everyone is just waiting, holding their breath for this event. After the event, the bid would come back in and perhaps at a lower price if property's destroyed. It's the bid that disappears. But people say that the offer to sell gold will disappear because they're looking at it from a dollar-centric. You know, it's like before uh, Copernicus, they thought that everything circled around the Earth. So they, they had a, a geocentric model, which is just wrong. And so things become more complicated and harder to understand the solar system. Same thing is true here. It's gold bidding on the dollar. What happens when gold withdraws its bid? You can't trade dollars for gold anymore. Now, there's always going to be demand on the part of dollars to buy gold. It's just that there's no demand anymore for gold to buy dollars because the quality of the credit has declined past that magic line, whatever that might be. 60 trillion, 100 trillion, who knows what the number is. There is that line and gold no longer wants to bid on the dollar, but dollars are bidding on gold, but they can't get it anymore. What are they going to do? And I posit that um, dollars, if, if, if gold will bid on commodities, and if it's possible to trade your dollar for commodities, let's say crude oil, people are gonna say, oh, well, that's a backdoor to get gold, right? I trade my dollars for crude, I get some crude, I sell the crude for gold, and now I have the gold I really wanted. That will cause two things to happen to the price of oil simultaneously. 
the price of oil would bid up to literally infinity in dollar terms and push down to near zero in gold terms. And so all commodities will go to infinity until people say, stick a fork in the dollar, it's hyperinflated, it's done. People will call it hyperinflation, it'll have nothing to do with quantity, it will have, it will do, it'll have to do with the quality having declined sufficiently that gold no longer bids on it, and then the dollar no longer has value because it's actually gold's bid that gives the dollar its value, and gold withdraws its bid, the dollar is done. That's my answer. Thank you so much, CEO Keith Weiner, Brent Johnson, and Jeff Deist. Give them a big round of applause. This episode was brought to you by Monetary Metals. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the Gold Yield Marketplace, a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions. And our gold financing simplified, reliable financing denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold using and gold producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. See you next time.